Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guide to John chapter 7, which is where we find ourselves this morning as we make our way through the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Yeah, many of the people believed in Him. They said, when the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest them, Him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, he will, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Where does he, what does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're making our way through the Gospel of John, and as you enter chapter 7, to set the stage a little bit, Jesus has been in and continues to be in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, a great celebration is happening, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booze, and we'll explain why that's significant in a little bit. But as Jesus, has, as His ministry has continued to unfold in Jerusalem, Opinions about him have continued to develop and to change, and you see people being more and more polarized in their opinion of who he is. We've already seen that some would make him king, even by force. Surely this is the one who's intended to lead Israel. Others, as you enter chapter 7, have decided that he should be killed and are setting out to try to end his life. And still others, even as we begin our passage... So surely this is the Christ, right? This is the sent one from God who's been prophesied in the Old Testament. You know, if another Christ was to show up, surely he wouldn't do more things than Jesus is already doing. So on the scene in Jerusalem, there are multiple opinions. There are differences in terms of who is this Jesus? How do we evaluate what he is doing and what he is claiming? How do we understand him? And in the midst of this disagreement and these differences of opinion, Jesus says the most remarkable thing. He's already promised the woman at the well, if you remember in John 4, that, that He can offer water, if you drink of which, you will never thirst again. And here He says, if you're thirsty, come to Me and drink. And if you do so, out of Me, or out of you, out of your hearts, will flow rivers of living water. That sounds pretty good. But think about your own heart for a moment. Is this something that you know? You have first-hand experience of your heart, and out of your heart flows rivers of living water. It's not always my experience. I would guess that it's not your experience necessarily. In fact, I think a lot of times we feel like our heart has about a, a Nalgene's worth of water in it. 
and we have to protect it because it's a limited supply. And if we were to hand it out or share it too radically or too generously, we're not really sure that that water would be filled back up, that we would be rehydrated. And so we tend to guard and protect the water that we have and be reluctant to share it, the life that we have. And so we see Jesus promise that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. What a beautiful description. And yet, does your heart feel that way? If your heart doesn't feel that way, then we need to back up. We need to try to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. Try to understand our hearts and see why we don't necessarily experience. Because I read something like that, and the only thought going through my head is, I'm not sure I know what that means, but I sure want to know what that means. My heart feels too dry and hard and cracked to have living water flow out of it. So is this just a pipe dream? Is it metaphor? Or is Jesus talking about something that's real and true? And then you realize that the question confronting us is the exact same question confronting the people on the ground. Who is Jesus? King? Someone who should be put to death because he's full of lies? Messiah? And it's only in deciding that question that we actually understand, believe, and experience what Jesus is talking about in terms of rivers of living water flowing from our own hearts, from our own selves. And so let's work through the passage in terms of considering, number one, you are way more thirsty than you think. Number two, there is way more water than you think. And number three, being a source of living water. So number one, essentially, you're really thirsty. Number two, there's plenty of water. And number three, what does it mean to be a source of life, of water? Which is what that is an image for coming out of John chapter 7. Who is this Jesus? Jesus says, come to me and drink. And he's used this now twice and claiming to be living water and claiming to be a kind of water that actually fills you up so that you're not thirsty anymore, that fills you up in such a way that out of your heart comes living water that would then give life to other people. This is a description, a picture he's held out two times already in the Gospel of John. And of course, the reality that it points up is, oh, the people are thirsty. And it's a very apt metaphor in in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, in the first century. It was a dry and arid climate, and water is a big deal. You can go to places like all around this area and see cisterns that are carved out of rock that would collect water during large rainfalls because it's such a precious commodity. To talk about water, you know, when we talk about water being life, we don't really, it doesn't resonate with us in the way that it resonates when you're in a place where water is life and it's hard to come by and you have to do everything in your power to hold on to it to preserve life. And so he raises for them the picture, he raises for us the picture that we are thirsty. We're thirsty culturally, we're thirsty as individuals, and you don't have to look long at all. I certainly didn't have to look long this week for pictures of desperate thirstiness in our culture. There's a new song, which is rather a gross song, I don't recommend listening to it, by Tove Lowe called Habits, and is some woman singing, and she goes through all these things that she's engaged in, addictions, overeating, 
things that distract her. And then the chorus sings, You're gone, and I got to stay high all the time to keep you off my mind. High all the time to keep you off my mind. Spend my days uh, cloaked in a haze trying to forget you, you babe. I fought, songs are so funny when you read them. I fall back down, gotta stay high all my life, I forget I'm, uh, to forget I'm missing you. So it's a song they celebrate, well, maybe celebrate is a strong word, but it's a song that, uh, goes through all of the things that this woman distracts herself by because she has been left by the person that she truly loves. And so now to make it through life, Rather than thinking about the love that's been lost, she says, I've got to stay high all the time. And then the rest of the song goes through and enumerates all the ways in which she's staying high all the time. What's it's a picture of? It's a picture of being thirsty. It's a picture of an unquenchable thirst and all the things that she goes through will not deliver to her that which she seeks. We're taking it, you know, that's a cultural, artistic rendering of thirstiness. I read an essay, fascinating essay this week on um, the the uh, most popular entertainer, children's entertainer in the Washington, D.C. Metroplex. His name is Eric Noss, and he goes by the title, The Great Zucchini. And Noss is a legend. He makes twice as much as any other child entertainer in the D.C. Metroplex. He's hard to get a hold of. Uh, he's a college dropout, didn't... Really, nothing significant was happening in his life until he figured out that he kind of connected with kids and was good at that. And so he started to do this, and he was an instant sensation. And now his his act is 35 minutes. He does six to eight on Saturday, six to eight on Sunday, and pulls down well over $100,000 a year. Not bad for two days of work a week. He's doing pretty well. He's also become a bit of a celebrity in terms of uh, the uh, moms, particularly the single moms, think she's quite the catch, right? You have somebody come in and entertain a house of toddlers, and you think this guy is not half bad. So he's almost a celebrity in the D.C. area, right? Commands $300 for his 35-minute uh, performance. But as you get to know Eric Noss or the course of this essay, there start to be odd features about his life. He takes cabs everywhere to his performances, and his stuff is is really outdated. He doesn't wear a costume. He does have this amazing rapport with children, which has made him famous, but there are things that don't... He, and he seem, he demands payment up front, and so people started to wonder if he, he had cash flow problems, and so the reporter, the journalist, is getting to know him, starts giving him rides to different places, and it ultimately becomes clear that... He can't drive anywhere because he's got a, a, a substantial amount of unpaid parking tickets and is deeply in debt because he's a gambling addict. And so you suddenly get this very, this very odd picture of the most sought-after children's entertainer in the D.C. Metroplex is an enormous gambling addict who can't, doesn't exercise any control over his own life. And in fact, the people who know him best say he never grew up. He's, he's a kid, and that's what makes him good at this. And then you get to know Eric Noss a little bit better, and you realize uh, his, his dad beat on him a lot. And he used to babysit for a kid across the hall who uh, eventually was a victim of a double homicide suicide. And it's at that point that he kind of just disengaged. 
and kind of remained where he was at that point. And you begin to see this picture of this person who, on the outside, all of his friends want to be him. On the outside, he's got, he's got women throwing themselves at him. He makes a, a good salary working only two days a week and can do anything he wants the rest of the week. But then you begin to get to know him and you realize, oh, this is an incredibly broken individual. And there's nothing here but thirstiness. It's nothing that's satisfying him. There's nothing that's putting his life back together. There's nothing that's explaining the pain and suffering that he's experienced in his life. He's thirsty. We're thirsty uh, expressed in our arts. We're thirsty as individuals. But we're also thirsty culturally in some of the more broken manifestations of our culture. If uh, you've been following the news... Uh, you may have seen that this year in particular, the issue of uh, teens sending images of themselves that are inappropriate by virtue of a mobile phone has become more and more prominent. And there are two scandals this year, one in Louisa County, Virginia, and one in Pennsylvania, and both were uh, made national press uh, for this basic reason, the number of students involved. In other words, one student, it was realized, had done this, and then so they talked to the student and tried to get the picture, and then they realized some more were involved, and then they realized more were involved. And in Louisa County, it was a, a, about 100 students that were involved with all kinds of pictures of, of all running the gamut that were put on Instagram. And so uh, there, it's the cover story in the Atlantic Monthly this month. It's asking the question, why, why are teens doing this? It's a new phenomenon. It's not something we've wrestled with in the past. And now one-third of all high school students essentially will engage in, in sending a picture that's not appropriate of themselves. If you think that your child won't struggle with this, then you're out to lunch. It's something that they will confront. In fact, a study of East Texas high schools found that 28% of sophomores and juniors had sent a picture and... Uh, over 30% had been asked and nagged uh, for a picture. But the um, one of the sad parts about the cover story is, is the question, why? I mean, why would you do this? And so they're, they're talking to girls who have sent pictures, and it, it basically keeps boiling down to the same couple of answers. One, I think that's the only way I'll get the boy. Or two... I think that by doing this and being seen as being cool and edgy by my girlfriends will make me cool. And I will move up the social ladder amongst the females in my school. Right? How incredibly sad that for what they believe, of course, you don't get either, right? The studies show, but this perception of how, how I'm going to be valued, of what, what I, my, my coolness, my friends, and getting the boy that I'm attracted to, all of this boils down to simply offering that picture. And that's what I'm reduced to in my, in my cultural niche. My goodness, that's thirstiness. It's desperate thirstiness to be loved, to be accepted, to find community. And it's a picture of engaging things so sad that will never, never quench. It's drinking from a cesspool. And it will leave the individuals only more thirsty, only more diseased than, than they were to begin with. 
you're thirsty, and I'm thirsty. We're thirsty, we're more thirsty than we'd like to admit. But the question, at least at the beginning, is in wrestling with your thirst is, okay, where do you go to quench that thirst? Right, you say Jesus. Okay, good. Where else do you go to quench that thirst? There are troughs that you are prone to drink from that do nothing but make you thirstier and do nothing but rob your humanity. And if you aren't being honest with your own heart and wrestling what those troughs are, then you're never going to get beyond them. You're never going to be able to actually be in a place where you experience the living water that Jesus is talking about. Because if you just, if you think that you can live on, say, yeah, I got some living water for Jesus, but I also need this water from this other trough, then you're not really leaving room in your heart, your soul, for the living water of Jesus to course. You're mixing it, and you're getting contaminated water in the end. Where do you go to drink? Well, Jesus is making some bold promises here. How does he quench our thirst? How does he meet us in that place? Where really are? Can you imagine? Like, do you not desperately want to be in a place where your thirst is quenched to the degree that you don't go to that trough that you go to? That you're actually free and liberated from that? And out of your heart is always flowing living water? What an amazing picture. How does Jesus do that? What are we talking about? Well, as I said at the beginning, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles is going on in Jerusalem. And this is a pretty significant feast in Jewish history. It, uh, it, it still celebrated important. It's really fun if you ever get to... It happens in the fall. And if you ever get to go to New York City in the fall, go to Williamsburg, uh, if it's during the, the eight days of the Feast of Booze, and walk around because um, historically, the uh, it's, it's a commemoration of being in the wilderness wandering. And the Jews, the really Orthodox and Hasidic Jews in New York City... Right, So they want to commemorate this, and they're supposed to build a booth in which to dwell for these days to commemorate their wandering in the wilderness. Well, how do you build a booth when you live in an apartment in New York City? You build it on your fire escape. And so if you walk around Williamsburg during the, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, Feast of the Festival of Tabernacles, uh, you're going to see lots of huts built on the fire escapes of those buildings in which the family takes up residence to continue to celebrate the Feast of Booze uh, in the situation that they can. So it's, it's hugely significant. And it became significant for a number of reasons. One, the temple. Uh, Solomon's temple was dedicated during this time, so the feast becomes associated with the temple itself. And over time, it, actually, it also becomes associated significantly with rain. It's happening in the fall. Lots of prayers for rain start to become associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's uh, because the feast itself is also looking forward to God providing the water that's prophesied in Ezekiel and Zechariah, which Amber read about this morning. That's what this the feast is drawing on and the imagery that Jesus is drawing on. Both Ezekiel and Zechariah talk about, they have this vision of the future. And the vision of the future is that the temple is restored in, in glory and from it comes forth the stream of water and it floods the area and flows to the Dead Sea and makes it whole. 
it heals it so that things can live and flows through the Mediterranean and makes it whole. And it, it gives a picture in Ezekiel of, of life, of trees of abundance sprouting on the banks of the sea as a result of the life that flows from the temple. This is the picture that you have in Ezekiel and the picture that you have in Zechariah. And so the people to celebrate this, there would be a procession in Jerusalem and they would start down at a fountain and they would take water and they would uh, walk, proceed up to the temple. And as they were doing, um, they would say and sing Isaiah 12.3, which is with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would enter into the gate and there would be a ceremony and they're singing psalms as they enter, praising God and celebrating His provision. And then the water would be poured out into a fountain as representative of the fountain that God would one day establish from which this life-giving stream would flow. Right? We're talking about high, high symbolism, rich imagery, and Jesus is, is in the midst of what, this going on. And He says, Drink of Me, and out of your heart will flow living water. What's Jesus saying? Yes, you know all this imagery. You know this tradition. You know that the temple will one day give forth living water. It will flow out of the temple. But Jesus seems to be changing it a bit and saying, no, the water is actually going to flow out of your heart, not out of a physical temple. We know that the New Testament authors will reflect saying, we are God's temple, His dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as His Holy Spirit is dispensed upon us, out of our hearts flow rivers of living water that what has been foreseen by the prophets is coming true in a sense as God rescues you and remakes you and out of you because Jesus' life pours into you, out of you pours life. It's a remarkable picture of the life that Jesus gives to us and out of our hearts comes that life, that living water. Well, what does this actually look like? We said you're thirsty. We were saying that there is more water than you ever dreamed. Jesus is a never-ending source of life. And He says, if you want to have Me pouring out of you, just come and drink of Me. So We're so prone yet to still go to other things to drink. So what does it actually look like to become a source ourselves of this living water, to be so eagerly drinking of Jesus that nothing is impeding the life that comes out of us? It's a beautiful picture of this uh, that several of you have mentioned to me in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a number of you are following Kara Tippett's blog, which is entitled Mundane Faithfulness. Kara Tippett is uh, the wife of a church planter in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, planted out of uh, one of our denomination's churches, I believe, Village 7. And um, at 30, she's a mother of four, and at 36 she was diagnosed with breast cancer. They treated the breast cancer very aggressively, and uh, just as she was in the 11th hour of moving out of that and thinking that she was going into remission, they found that her uh, her abdomen was filled with tumors. And so she continues to be walking this road. She started a blog called Mundane Faithfulness. She's essentially dying of cancer. She's been rest, you know, holding this open, but in, in holding this open, you see this most remarkable picture of a woman who says, Yes, this is breathtakingly hard. 
I'm dying, I'm frustrated with God in the midst of this, and yet I believe, because I, I believe in Jesus, and I drink from Him, that even in my death there is beauty because it gives life. And so she did the most amazing of things. Um, you may have been seen in the news as well. There is a woman named uh, Brienne, Brittany Maynard. And Brittany, who is also uh, dying of a brain tumor, has moved to Oregon and has scheduled her own death, which is legal in Oregon, which will be November 1st of this fall. And uh, Kara being aware of this situation and being prompted by um, some people, decided to write Brittany a letter. Right, so here's, here's uh, Kara believing that even in death, even as her own life is emptied out, because Jesus' life flows through her, there is much beauty and much good. And she entrusts herself to Him. And uh, as opposed to Brittany, who, and I don't pretend to know what, going through these things would be like. So please don't hear me saying that. But Brittany has decided, I don't want to go through the pain. I'm going to die on my own terms. It's going to be November 1. And this is what Kara writes to Brittany. More importantly, will you hear from my heart that Jesus loves you? He loves you. He loves you. He died an awful death upon a cross so that you would know Him today, that we would no longer live separate from Him, and in our own death. He died and His death happened. It is not simply a story. He died and He overcame death three days later. And in that overcoming of death, He overcame the death you and I are facing in our cancer. He longs to know you, to shepherd you in your dying, and to give you life, and give you life abundant, eternal life. It's a woman who's dying. She's saying goodbye to her family. It's a tragic story. And in the midst of that death, in the midst of that brokenness, there is nothing but life pouring out of her. Right? Can you not feel the life-giving water that pours forth from her to Brittany and anyone who can read that as a result of knowing Jesus? You know, in the wilderness, the people were thirsty and they didn't have enough water and God provided a rock to be struck, and Paul uh, draws on a legend that this rock actually kind of followed with Israel, traveled with them, and he says that rock was Jesus. And Jesus is that rock, and he is broken open. And it's the breaking open of Jesus at the cross from which life flows. That that stream that the prophets looked forward to, and that Jesus says in John 7, he says, I'm going to where you can't come. Where is it? He's going to the cross. And indeed, after that, he will go to the Father. But in going to the cross, no, we can't come because we can't accomplish what he's going to accomplish because in his being broken open comes life. And it's from that stream that we must drink. And in drinking from it, life pours forth from us. Karen knows that better than we do because she knows she's dying. And she's not hanging on to all the false sources of water that we are so prone to drink from. Will it require death to wake us up? In some ways it will. But in other ways, let's learn from Kara. Go to Christ and drink deeply. And out of us will flow rivers of living water. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not simply rescued us in some legal sense. We praise you this morning because you have given us life. You have given us abundant life, a life that would flow forth from us as Jesus is unified to us and as we drink deeply from Him. Forgive us, Father, for drinking from very contaminated pools of water. Rescue us and help us to drink even more deeply from Jesus. And help us to know the joy of the life that flows out from us as a result of that drink. We come to Your table this morning for exactly that. And pray that we would know the rivers of living water. We would know the quenching of our thirst as we partake of our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.